Hey, I'm Joe McCann of Asymmetric. And I am panicked on real rates. What's up, Jensen? Hey, not much, Lindsen. What are you doing? I'm just sitting here getting older. <laughs> Stuff's just falling off. Just it's it's funny because it's a very dark room, a lot of black. And I've noticed when I get up after a couple hours, there's this flake. We all notice that. And yet somehow I flake away and I gain weight. So uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting phenomenon getting this old. And there's some days I wake up and I'm like, why even shower? Yeah, you know. At what point will people? We notice that too. At what point too. will people say, "You know how you stink a little"? I'm seventy <laughs> years old. Get over it. Got very little reason to shower, but I do. Can you? Thank you. Because why do we do appreciate that? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about um, crypto because uh, I want to catch up. I own some crypto. Uh, I should be in this guy's fund. I've just been so uh, busy raising capital and allocating and thinking through the world and. Uh, We just uh, don't invest in uh, people in Portland just because we feel they'll all commit suicide. (laughs) uh, But our our guest today is a good friend and maybe one of the smartest people I follow on the Twitter, Joe McCann. And I just need to get caught up. I read his monthly letters as a non-LP, but he's a very friendly friend. We, we, We followed each other on the interwebs. For a long time, he was in Austin. He's now moved to Portland. I'd never understand why people live in Portland. My brother-in-law lives in Portland. Every time I go to Portland, I go, hmm, like this is where I would go if I wanted to kill people. Uh, it's the perfect setting. <laughs> it's raining. No one here. No one's outside checking on their neighbors. It's just dark for six months. No one will find out anything because it's Portland. And uh, But here you go. And then that whole Portlandia show, dumb. I mean- Everybody loves that one guy who did Portlandia. Never thought that guy was funny. But I, every comedian thinks he's funny. So I guess I, you know, I'm breaking some kind of rule uh, saying Portlandia is dumb. But they have great donuts. Uh, I think it's cool that women don't shave their armpits at a certain part of the country. I think that's cool. I think having sour milk is cool for those that like sour milk. And um, I don't know. And so if you're thinking of moving to Portland, uh, try Phoenix. So there you go, a public service <laughs> announcement. <laughs> City of Portland's not going to hire you. For, that's for sure. <laughs> Listen, I don't get it. I, I agree that you, what the, the trick of Portland is you go once and it's sunny and you go, the fuck, this place is unbelievable. There's owls, there's sun. When the sun does come out, they really love it. Yeah, and of course it's chilly out, so you don't see women that you don't notice they haven't shaved. And uh, there's all these kind of tricks that get made. Have we have we denigrated Portland enough for this episode? I think we've uh, see what I wanted to do job. here is to make fun of Portland, not crypto. Gotcha. See now it makes things. Oh, oh crypto's not as bad as Portland. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But anyways, Joe, um, I love the name of his fund, asymmetric, because that's the way I look at crypto. It's very asymmetric. It's twenty four seven, three sixty five. It's not for everybody, nor should it be. It's been packaged and. Uh, at us is like, you must understand crypto. 
and I think most people disdain it. But the data will not go away. There is a large percentage of people, including myself, that have uh, significant digital assets. We ourselves at Lumina Wealth, we've invested in a digital asset first wealth manager. He probably knows Rom. I have been successful investing in Multicon. We've had Multicon on here many times. They've suffered like the rest, 70 to 90% drawdowns over the years, but it keeps coming back. Yeah, It just keeps coming back. And there's a halving coming up. We have regional banks failing. We have bad policy around these failures that I want to talk about with Joe. We also have a halving coming up, which is kind of like a bake-off, but with uh, miners. And uh, I don't even know what that, that totally made no sense, but I just said it. Uh, so disregard it. I don't, we don't have the money to edit that. And, um, <laughs> you know, a little bit about Joe, so he doesn't have to banter about himself. He, he worked at Passport and Microsoft. And um, in this fund, he's, he's secured some, some great LPs. He did systematic trading at, at Passport Capital, John Burbank's big fund. And um, what else can I say about Joe? He really thinks about crypto as technology, not money. And crypto is money at many levels, but he really understands it from a technological standpoint, but also has that great, you know, from Burbank and just being on Twitter all these years, talking macro with him, really applies the macro to it. So he's built the kind of perfect product for himself to run. And uh, so we'll catch up on the fund, the size of the fund, but I really want to delve into seeing that we're approaching June and Bitcoin's had a great year. Uh, and Joe in December was, was talking about all the good things that were going to come to as the world was ending for crypto. I thought we'd catch up. Is that cool? I think it's a great idea. Let's Ethan, get are you uh, listening in? I'm here. Okay. Thanks for your notes here. The, uh, so let's uh, bring Joe on. All right. Joey. Hey. Hey. Is it raining today in Portland? No, sir. It is finally beautiful. It's uh, the six months of abuse is completely washed away with the liquid sunshine <laughs> hitting my face as we speak. And what was the reason for Portland? You move, you're in Austin. Everybody's supposed to be moving to Austin. You lived in Austin a long time. Why Portland? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> so uh, my wife and I actually were living in Marin County uh, up until a couple of years ago, and we definitely didn't want to leave. Uh, but we had a baby during the pandemic and um, relatively isolated for good reason. Looked uh, into buying a home in you know January of 2021. And if you recall, that's when housing market really started to go parabolic. And Marin County turns out to be a place where they have restricted supply. So I'm not an economist, but when there's a limited supply and a huge amount of demand, you can imagine what happens to the price. And so we started to look at other locations of where we wanted to live. And um, Portland was candidly the easiest solution, um, just given trying to relocate with an infant during the middle of a pandemic, uh, trucking and shipping was like three to five X more expensive and almost impossible just to book anything. And so we decided um, instead of, you know, moving uh, back to New York City or back to Austin or the LA area, we just landed on Portland, got family and friends here. I've lived here previously. My wife lived here previously. And so here we are. Uh, I, I will say that um, we are definitely going to be snowbirds going forward. Uh, so we've secured a, a, an allocation in Mexico to, oh, I like to do that. exactly that. <laughs> I like that. 
Yeah. Mexico is on fire. The markets are on fire. There's all kinds of trends that, that point to Mexico. What do you like about Mexico? Uh, namely the sun. Um, yeah. You know, namely the sun. Yeah. So, I mean, look, uh, we when I lived in New York, you know, it's trivial to go down to the, to the Caribbean or Miami or wherever. It's a couple hours, right? On the West Coast, you effectively have Cabo San Lucas. That's primarily the spot that you're going to end up going to. It's, it's not super far away. And it's definitely sunny the majority of the year. So that's really, that was really our uh, guiding principle in trying to find a spot where we could escape the liquid abuse during the winter here in Portland and get some sunshine uh, down in Cabo. And what have you have a great voice? Do you smoke cigarettes, cigars? What do you do? Did you ever do voiceovers? Uh, no, uh, but thank you for that compliment. Um, I, uh, I don't do anything, I just drink a lot of coffee. That's probably, I don't know if that actually matters, but I do not smoke cigars. Um, I used to smoke weed. I don't do that anymore. It's just too strong. It is too strong, right? Like yeah. when I was a kid, when I was a kid back in the 40s, uh, <laughs> we didn't know what we were going to smoke. We hoped someone sprayed it with the deodorant so at least we could get a buzz because generally it wasn't <laughs> even weed. Now this stuff would knock you out for three, four days. Yeah. So, so yeah, but Portland's probably got the good stuff, I would imagine. Put Portland. I mean, look. The I think the you know silver lining to Portland is is that they are really good at vices. So they've got great coffee, <laughs> great pot, great beer, great food. Donuts. Perfect for just sitting inside all day. That is interesting. So so why not Phoenix? Why Mexico? If it's just about the sun. Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I think. Uh, partially we were just looking at it going like when we do get away do we want it to feel like we're just going to another house or do we want to feel like we're actually going on vacation and i think the delineation there was you know yeah we could go to phoenix go to palm springs but is it really feeling like a vacation probably not uh going you know even you know just down to mexico just feels a bit more like a a respite a vacation so that's why we netted out there All right, so let's quickly dive into asymmetric quick update on the firm and sure. and where you are today. Yeah, sure. So um, we're we're not even quite a year into our existence. Um, uh, feels feels like a decade, ten years, yeah. <laughs> given given what happened last year and and thus far this year. So funds doing great. Look, um, you know, obviously can't talk specific on returns, but uh, we are dramatically outperforming um, every index, every benchmark. Uh, all of our peers, from from what I understand, um, so we're we're in a really good spot, and I think this has a lot to do with the way that we have viewed the market um, last year. Which you know, as you mentioned in our monthly market updates, we were we were pretty dark, we were pretty bearish, pretty much all of last year. Yeah, and, macro and, uh, wise, you were dark like I was. We were just yep. So we jived, and I don't love jiving with anybody, but you and I chatted. But at the same time, we both still got a lot of stuff wrong. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, you know, look, uh, I, I, I think for, for us, um, we were, we were, you know, bearish to short going into November. So, uh-huh. so we, we benefited from that. But the thing that was really the issue in November was, wait a second, um, we have embedded credit risk or uh, counterparties, which reminds me of the 2008 GFC where the banks couldn't trust each other because they had toxic assets on their balance sheets and who had what and how much, et cetera. Well, in crypto, it was like, who was lending the three arrows, right? Who, or, uh, you know, did you ha- all of a sudden have all this inventory on FTX and now it's at zero? Um, so we, we you know, effectively flattened everything. And we said, look, we'll, we'll shoot first, ask questions later. 
Um, it definitely ate into our PL just to flatten all those positions, but it was absolutely the right call. And, and thus far, we've had exactly $0 of counterparty losses uh, in, in asymmetrics history, which has served us well, um, basically flipping bullish in December, uh, getting quite long and definitely benefiting from all the upside participation uh, the first four months of the year. And are you guys north? Is there any size of assets? Can you share that or no? Yeah, we're, we're around 50 million right now. Um, we, uh, <laughs> last year was a tough year to raise money. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least, we had a. We I think actually this had, year has been tougher, but but yeah, maybe not I mean, for crypto, just in general venture. For, for for us, it's it's slightly easier because we have a pretty solid track record uh, now officially, right? Whereas last year it was like, hey, I'm a smart guy, you should trust me, right? Um, and so you know, we we went from having a significant amount of capital verbally committed in February of last year to a fraction of that right. in in uh, June when we actually launched. And you know, the, the reality is though is that look, this is my first rodeo. My team is also really seasoned and experienced. And and so he said, look, irrespective of the dollar amount that we have under management, our strategy is exactly the same. And that has served us um, having the amount of uh, money we have under management now. And you add a zero to that, it's the exact same strategy. So uh, we're, we're actively raising money right now. We've had a significant amount of inbound interest. Uh, most of our LPs are actually topping up their subscriptions, which is extremely bullish and, and humbling as well. So uh, we feel pretty good about the position we're in. You know, maybe we can get some market goodwill uh, going forward with some of the the crises that we seem to have in front of us, as well as um, I think a, a massive blunder from the Federal Reserve uh, the last couple of weeks raising rates. But we'll see what happens. Um, we, we feel like we're in a good spot. Um, we, we're running a really low net leverage right now, candidly because we generated so much cash. So in the case that we do get you know kind of a major pullback in the markets. We'll be looking to deploy that additional cash back into it because we're we're definitely bullish longer term based on I think specifically what we wrote on our most recent market update. Now you're a geek. I mean, obviously. <laughs> so what was the pill the pill for you that got you down uh, crypto? Yeah, my 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 background is arguably colorful to say the least, but I've I've kind of flip flop back and forth between tech and finance. Um, and I would say in the you know early kind of 2009, 2010, 11 timeframe, um, I really got uh, close and interested into open source software and the kind of open source philosophy of software development. Um, started a company called NodeSource, which is a Node.js company. Node.js went on to become the most popular and widely adopted open source project of the last decade. 100% of the Fortune 500 uses it. Every crypto Web3 project uses it, a truly ubiquitous technology. And the reason that this is important is, is that when I got into crypto really heavily in 2016, I was looking at it, I was like, wow, there's actually markets here. There's interesting, you know, trading opportunities and and tokens and assets. And then 2017, it was crazy, right? The 10,000 basis point arbitrages lasting for weeks. You saw these massive dislocations in markets. You couldn't even short things. There were no derivatives markets, basically, right? I was just like, this is crazy. But more importantly, it, it was all open, whereas Wall Street's very much gatekept, right? So if you, if you want to just kind of run a strategy or trade, you know, futures or whatever, like with Wall Street, there's all of these hoops you got to jump through. You got to pay 25 grand a year for Bloomberg. You've got to get a CME account, but then you got to face it with someone. There's all of these, you know, kind of barriers to entry, whereas crypto was effectively the open source philosophy applied to digital yeah. assets. It's like everything was open, access everything. And so that to me was like a huge unlock. I saw this and said, if the future of, you know, call it finance or, or just the, the digitization of money, right? The digital transformation of money, the digital enablement of money is going to be crypto or crypto adjacent. And it's kind of applying this open source philosophy to its approach. Like this is right up my alley. And so I got way into it. And ultimately that's how I ended up at, at Passport is 
I was writing all of these kind of quantitative and systematic trading strategies uh, for my own book um, because it was just so easy to do so, right? There were just no barriers to entry. And so that's really what got me deeply uh, involved on the trading side. And then that, you know, best time to start really digging in on, on the kind of research side is during a bear market. So 2018, 19, started to do a ton of research in, in you know, crypto and Web3 more broadly. And, and that's kind of how I got this sort of, you know, angel investing, advising to a bunch of like crypto Web3 startups coupled with the trading side. It just felt like a perfect fit for me. So yeah, I'm adjacent to all this watching the people that I think are getting the pill. Like meaning, listen, I, I keep it simple. You know, people that have made me money in the past, I'm a trend follower. If, if they're not wrong and they're good people, I'll just keep following. They're going to be wrong. Everybody's wrong. I mean, you got some things wrong too. I got lots of things wrong. But when I don't know, I follow. So, you know, people ask me what I think about Bitcoin. I go, did Fred change his mind? Uh, or did uh, Joe change his mind? Like, there's a few people I just go, did I miss something? Because I only really follow a few people. And that's kept me above all the noise you know, and uh, at least not levered to anything in, in, in crypto space, but just in the game through funds and a little bit of personal investing and obviously indirectly. So you, you just knew because of the open source nature that it wouldn't go away and the bear market would just eventually end. So, so you use that 18, 19 timeframe to actually make some investments or learn more or what got you really excited about crypto? Was it Ethereum or Bitcoin or both? Yeah. 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 No, look, I, I so, I mean, p part of this is, and I, I kind of alluded to this in our last market update, um, this concept of, of pattern recognition or pattern matching, but it's, it's, kind of like broader spectrum pattern matching, right? So like when I used to trade on the on the desk on Wall Street, we were tape readers. So that's a form of pattern matching, right? Yeah. But it's very specific to trading. And so what I try to do was zoom out a little bit and go, all right, what what is what is the pattern that has persisted, you know, this is kind of like 2018 timeframe. What is the pattern that's persisted over the course of like the past decade with respect to to technology? And if you if you look back at like what IBM and Microsoft and all these folks were doing, they were pushing this narrative upon Fortune 500s of digital transformation. You need to digitally transform your business. Every company is a software company now. If you're not, you're not going to be a business anymore, right? And so you started to dive deeper into well, what industries and verticals were getting digitally transformed. Well, there, there were the obvious ones like media, and, you know, um, uh, uh, travel, and you know, entertainment, and these types of things, right? Commerce, yeah. e-commerce, one hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so those those were industries that were clearly digitally transformed. And in addition to that, you had like net new businesses spin out of this, right, because of the advances in technology with things like cloud computing and mobile technology as well. Right. The mm -hmm. thing is, there's only there's two industries that were stubbornly not getting digitally transformed, and uh, that's healthcare, and uh, that's largely from a regulatory. Uh, reason. Um, there's obviously other reasons, but heavily regulated. So it's difficult to impact that business in a meaningful way. And finance. And, you know, I, when I was running NodeSource um, back in 2013, 14, I mean, we sold to Goldman Sachs, we sold to Citadel and, and it's extremely difficult to get finance to, you know, use open source, right? I mean, the, the concept of the bank is to keep everything as close to them as possible. And it's, you know, it's, this is my edge. I don't want to share anything. I don't want to be transparent about anything. It's just kind of the, the business model. And I respect that. So culturally, it's difficult for them to start adopting things like open source tech. And eventually they started to. They started to get more engaged and like, actually, this is this is useful. This is meaningful, et cetera. And so I looked at it and said, 
Well, if finance in general is going to be digitally transformed, it's probably not going to be from, you know, Microsoft selling them a bunch of services to kind of automate the process or it's, you know, we saw the rise in fintech. That was great. Like we had all these new kind of ways of, of um, you know, banking and, and doing investing, et cetera. I, was, I know you participated in a lot of that, but it still wasn't enough to really kind of drive a wedge into finance because they have such a tight grip on the financial system. And so what that required was something that was a pattern that existed in the late 90s. And that pattern was the music industry. So if you recall in the 90s, you know, you would go to a Tower Records and maybe you, maybe not you, uh, Howard, you, you know, you, you might have still been, you know, testing out a walker at that point. I was rich. I owned Tower Records. So, so, you know, like, you know, me, I was a teenager at the time. I'd go to Tower Records or go to my local you know, CD in those shop. Places. Yeah. You go buy a CD and it's like 16, 18 bucks or whatever it was. You get 12 tracks and a giant cardboard box and the music industry was just printing money off of this. And they effectively had a monopoly on not only the the content itself, but the distribution of that content. And eventually, people just had had enough. They found a way to kind of wedge their into the music industry, which was this uh, application called Napster. It completely broke apart the distribution of music uh, and also enabled creators to just like share their music if they could create it in their home studios, et cetera. And so the point that I'm making here is that the digital kind of application of the distribution of music changed the music industry, right? Completely. And now you look at it and it's like, well, yeah, of course, streaming and MP3s, like this is just obvious, right? But back then it wasn't. And so I look at finance and I go, well, crypto is actually kind of like this digital application of money that is driving a wedge into the banking and financial system, whether they like it or not. And, you know, the music industry, I don't know how large is that business? Let's call it somewhere in the realm of 50 to $80 billion a year or something, right? What's the size of the market of money? Well, it's money. So it's all of money. So <laughs> I look at that and go, that's a pretty big market to go get really smart in. And so if we can see the digital enablement and the digital application of money through programmable money, aka cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, et cetera, then that's a massive shift in the largest market on the planet. And so, you know, I've been gung-ho ever since. Okay, and let me just throw this little wrench in. So yes, about Napster, uh, I was lucky rich enough to just keep going to Best Buy. So I was like, oh, those crazy kids. <laughs> you know, I didn't trust people on my computer. So I missed the whole Napster thing and just complained about Best Buy. But in the end, but music is more monopolistic than ever because they still have Spotify by the balls. So, so yes, it's very Napster-esque programmable money, but at the end of the rainbow and the way it looks today, late May, 2023, uh, yes, the wedge has been driven in, but the incumbents and the old guard is just waiting to collect more money, uh, which is sad, but, how do you deal with that? Like using the music analogy, I agree with you, but let's face it, Spotify's margins still suck because they're still paying their overlords. So, so yes, Napster kind of won, but the music companies held on to all their power. Is that how it looks today, inning two of crypto? Yeah. So it's a great question because the, the, the way that I think about framing the response is that there's this kind of this ideological view, right? Or this kind of uh, utopian view. I never of, had that view. Right, but. right. There's like the, the optimal ideological approach is like 
crypto is going to, you know, disrupt the banks, the financial system, it's going to be more fair, it's going to be, you know, faster, better, cheaper, it's going to be more inclusive, all of these things, right? And, and I am a thousand percent on board with that ideology. Now, let's talk about what happens in the real world, yeah. okay? The real world doesn't operate that way, right? Meet Sam Bankman-Fried. Right. And so, so it is, I think, foolish to assume that the banks are not going to have some uh, major influence in the future of crypto or digital assets. That is, I think it's just foolish to think that. That being said, you can still actually benefit I think, from participating in the growth of crypto, especially we're talking like it's barely a trillion dollar market cap right now after being up to three trillion, which is nothing relative to, you know, nothing. It's nothing. I got to give some context for people that is like less than half of Apple. Apple was up a Starbucks the other day. So Apple's Apple's price moved a full Starbucks like the company the other day. And so, so the, basically they moved a couple of Starbucks, like, Crypto is a couple of Starbucks right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's tiny, right? Since Microsoft announced, you know, their chat GPT integrations, they've gained $500 billion in market cap. That's half of crypto. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, just on an announcement for this core technology that people are very interested in, right? And so I think the point that I'm getting to is that we are not sitting here saying that we're beating this ideological drum, you know, that a lot of, say, Bitcoin maximalists or, or kind of de- decentralization maximalists are, are beating. What we're saying is, is that on the one hand, there are going to there's going to be a ton of innovation in this space, and I think you know uh, I've talked about this in the past about stable coins is probably the killer use case right now, and I completely agree. But 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 in addition to that, like banks are for making money, they they are by definition right. in the business of generating income, right? Which is why the regional banks are in a really tough spot right now. And when not if when the banks start clearing options trades for for crypto. Um, they start actually enabling custody. We're already starting to start to see this kind of stuff, right? They're, they're not foolish enough to think that, hey, there's a new potential revenue stream that we can actually use our you know political power in DC to actually yeah. kind of uh, coordinate ourselves as the adults in the room. And I think Sam Bankman-Free did a great job of enabling folks like Ken Griffin and other bankers, like folks at BlackRock, et cetera, to continue to maintain that kind of hegemony that they have with respect to innovation and finance. And, you know, probably rightfully so to some extent, it will certainly upset you know, the kind of um, millennials and, and Zoomers that want this ideological change. And I'm not suggesting that it couldn't happen in some context, but let's be clear, these banks are absolutely going to be part and parcel to the growth and, and expansion of what's going to happen with crypto. Yeah. I mean, I trust Citadel more than Jack Dorsey, even though I like Bitcoin, I trust Citadel more than Jack Dorsey. Right. So I'm saying like, be careful who you pray to in this stuff. You just have to dig in and try this stuff and find people who are open-minded and who are playing with this stuff. Listen, again, this goes to Fred or Chris Dixon or you, or, you know, Yoni, the, the four or five people that just keep me grounded in Hey man, like it's it's over my pay grade, but as long as I follow the right people, I'll just stay on trend, right? And, That's right. You know, unfortunately, on trend can still mean eighty percent drawdowns. Like, uh, so so now I've seen that too. Um, well, again, I, I will, I will, you know, I will kind of I- I- inject myself a little bit here in, in that eighty percent drawdown. You know, so 
No, me. I didn't say you. I said me, meaning I wrote stuff up. I sold oh, some stuff. It. I wrote stuff down. Like, I, But it's still on trend. For, the money I lost wasn't because uh, it was just my own, you know, not taking enough money off the table. What I'm saying is not yeah. during that 80% drawdown that I suffered inside uh, one fund, Fred never changed his mind on a macro level. Chris, you know what I'm saying? People got shaken, but no one got stirred. So we still are on trend. The characters involved pulling the switches are a little bit different. The religious mindset has altered, but I don't trust Jack more than I trust Ken Griffin or uh, what's his name at JP Morgan um, because I don't think he knows. But I do know that um, the basic use case for me of Bitcoin is if I was going to be forced to leave, you know, just like Hitler in, in Europe, that is a use case, man. Just like they don't have to take my candelabra and I got my digital money in the cloud. That's a lot better 2023 than 1940s. Absolutely. Whatever religion people want to describe to digital money, that one works for me. Yeah, look, I completely agree. Uh, look, the, the the thing about Bitcoin that what one of the reasons we've been really, really bullish on it since, you know, effectively, like, I guess the weekend that SCB collapsed is that. Um, you know, g- gold historically has been uh, a flight to quality asset for hundreds of years in, in terms of uh, whenever there was economic or financial stress um, or, or <laughs> in the case of, you know, needing to leave a war zone, right, uh, et cetera, yeah. right? You just pack up your jewelry and your jewels and you, and you head out, right? Now, the difference is, is that we have a digital version of this that can fit on a USB stick or write down on a piece of paper the seed phrase, and now you've got you know some way to actually carry with you your your assets uh, in the form of Bitcoin. And we do know that um, a lot of uh, the kind of traditional macro shops actually put on significant positions in early March and have been unwinding them, taking profits over the past few weeks. And the reason that they only focus on Bitcoin is exactly for that reason. In addition to the fact that Bitcoin is a hoarded asset, there's 21 million Bitcoin, 5 million of them or so have disappeared. So the, the supply yeah, is even 30%, less. Yeah, 30%. Yeah, right. Uh, in addition to that, if it does maintain this digital gold narrative, which it has thus far, and you're seeing people adopted it in that way, this asset will get hoarded. Gold gets hoarded. That's what happens, right? Yeah. And that is exactly what is happening and will continue to happen to Bitcoin, which is one of the reasons why structurally we are a long fund with respect to how we think about Bitcoin and also digital assets in general. But I will kind of caveat this with the venture side of the book, right? Like Fred and Chris are lights out some of the best venture investors in history, right? Chris is also an LP in the fund. Um, venture investing in crypto, you're effectively long only. Yeah. The difference is, is that all of a sudden, a lot of these investments become liquid very quickly. And so the skill set to manage a liquid portfolio, which Correct. traditionally venture capitalists don't have, matters, especially if you have a fund that's liquid and all of a sudden you're up 10x one year, you're down 80% the next year. Uh, it's very difficult for institutions to swallow that. And so we take that very seriously at our, at our fund where an 80% drawdown is just a non-event. It would never happen. It's a non-starter for us. And it's the way that we actually have you know, relatively uh, robust um, concentration risk policies and, and VAR policies, the way that we manage the risk of the, of the liquid side of the portfolio, knowing that we have venture-related investments that will be coming liquid. And I think that combination of skill sets coupled with kind of- Well, this, it didn't exist. It didn't exist until June of last year. <laughs> yes, I'm talking my book here. <laughs> yeah, it didn't exist. And right. now the smart people, like, your, like the people that I 
you know, if I'm going to enter the arena and I say arena, you know, jokingly, if I'm going to enter arena this time, it's going to be people that have the trading background because crypto's biggest cool thing is also its biggest flaw, which leads to behavioral problems, which is the fact that it's got a price, Yep. you know, and most venture investors actually benefit from not having a price on this, letting time do its thing and letting software and high margin stuff do its thing. And I think the biggest flaw in crypto is that you can price it. Yep. Uh, which is what everybody thinks they love about it, but it also is a reminder that most people don't know how to trade exactly. behaviorally when they see a price. Greed and fear have a way of making people do stupid things. That's exactly right. And look, and we see this actually even in respect to the private investments, right? Like we know, we know, and we're seeing it spill out now. Uh, a lot of these privates are completely mismarked. Um, we're seeing secondary sales 50 to 70% discounts from the last rounds that were in 2021, right? We also know this to be the case with commercial real estate. We also know this to be the case with private equity funds that are not changing their marks and are clipping fees on an annual basis because that's a really good business model, right? If you yeah. can just have these kind of illiquid marks and kind of, you know, put your finger in the air and get a sense of what it's worth, well, maybe your, you know, KPMG may have a difference of opinion on that. But, uh, you know, that's a really good business model for folks that are long only that want to have, you know, multiple billions under management that uh, can just clip these on those types of things. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is still a repricing event that's going to happen to privates. And this is yes. across the spectrum, whether it's VC investments, crypto, all the way to commercial real estate, PE in between, et cetera. So knowing what we know, now let's talk about, you said you're um, panicked about real rates. Explain to people, let's go through the regional bank crisis, what was fixed, what wasn't fixed. You know, I stand by this as someone who was there in a way and just mad, you know, not, not you know, picketing or, or, or in the streets, but just never forgave, I don't know, maybe Obama or, or whoever was in charge for not making these people do perp walks. Yeah. Um, there was no witch hunt in 2008. We've had so many witch hunts post 2008. And, and I'm like, where were the witch hunts when we actually knew the villains? Yeah. Um, so when I saw Silicon Valley Bank go down, and I was like, okay, well, at least we got one thing right. Like they made depositors whole, whether that's right or wrong. It just had to happen. Unfortunately, fortunately, whatever. We Some of us got lucky, but they wiped out the equity. You know, there was a hole in Silicon Valley Bank. And the internet decided to close that hole, uh, blame it on whoever you want, but the internet just uh, found it and decided now was the time to close that hole. And equity was wiped out, debt was wiped out. Some hedge funds probably made some good bets trading you know, the paper. Um, but now here we are a few months later and the hole is still, we don't know what the hole is. And no one seems to be dealing with the hole. So tell yeah. me what your take here, because it was yeah. great in your in your report. I want people to hear how you're thinking about it. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, uh, actually, we, we wrote about this back in February of this year. Um, one of the things that we identified was that you know the Federal Reserve has consistently said that bank reserves are strong, banks reserves are strong. Well, the, the problem with that is is that you're not looking at the distribution of reserves across the banks, and it turns out that the money center banks, yeah, their reserves are great, right? Uh, it turns out the regionals were not. And so we did not forecast SVB as being kind of the tipping point here, but we had forecasted that there's going to be regional bank stress in some capacity, and uh, we were prepared for it. Um, most recently, what, what has happened is 
uh, somewhat unprecedented. You, you mentioned the SEB wipeout of equity. Well, they also wiped out the sub debt, the subordinated debt, which is you know kind of like mm-hmm. a junior securities, uh, lower on the the capital stack, but above you know uh, equity holders. Um, they wiped out 100% of it, and they wiped out 50% of the senior debt. This is unprecedented. This didn't happen during GFC, right? It just didn't happen. And I think the the result now with with First Republic, they wiped out 100% of the debt, right? So so debt holders are wiped out, right? And now this yeah. is kind of the the playbook for a lot of these regional banks that need to be, in our view, all of them need to be restructured. Um, we we don't see a scenario where uh, these banks are, unless there's some dramatic change in policy, um, whether it's through the combination of the Fed, FDIC, and Treasury, we don't see how these regional banks actually move past zombie status um, because, you know, A, their their securities are, are marked well below where they're, they're just wrong, right? In addition to that, you have, uh, you know, what I call a, a, a DDoS by social media, right? You've got people massively shorting the banks. But more importantly, Goldman Sachs came out earlier this week and even said, it turns out there's actually not a lot of bid for these banks either, and real money has been selling them. There's not a lot of reason to hold on to them. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way that the FDIC and and uh, the regulators have actually handled the wind downs of these banks. They basically said like, hey, we're going to wipe out equity. We're going to wipe out sub debt, senior debt, 100%. Oh, by the way, we'll give um, you know we'll give a little sweetheart deal to J.P. Morgan that will literally make two billion dollars on the deal off the top uh, while making all the depositors whole. That is the playbook: is that there's this yeah. you know move towards concentrating these regional banks into these large money center banks for whatever reason, um, and maybe it has to do with the fact that J.P. Morgan has really strong reserves. And I'm not picking on J.P. Morgan; like they're a great bank, they do whatever they do. But let's be clear: there's over two trillion dollars in the reverse repo right now. And that's paying over 5% a year in interest. The Fed is paying those those uh, depositors in the reverse repo over 5% a year. Well, there's about $2.2 2 JP Morgan has about half of that. So let's just call it a trillion. And let's just call the rate 5%. Well, what's 5% annualized on a trillion dollars? $50 billion, right? They're, they're earning $50 billion a year from the Fed for taking reserves out of their bank yeah. and parking with them. It's upside down. How does that make any sense? In addition to yeah. this, they're the ones coming in saving these regional banks because of their lack of reserves, right? It just doesn't make any and so so our view really is is like we don't unless there's a dramatic shift in policy or some new program put in place, BTFP is is abandoned on a broken leg. It's not going to work. It actually drives that the, the the negative carry for these banks. They can't make any money with BTFP. Um, how on earth are the regionals? As their stock prices continue to get hammered, as their deposits continue to flee, as their assets continue to devalue, by the way, the Fed just raised rates, making it more expensive to yeah. to borrow cash, right? What is the end goal here? And so the frustrating part, I agree with you, in 2008, you know, we had TARP. They said, hey, we're just going to like make you guys whole. Here's your golden parachutes. Let's not crash the economy. We'll buy all these assets that are toxic off your balance sheets and kind of quote unquote, recap these banks. You know, a couple of them died, yes, and there was some consolidation space. Well, now they don't have quote unquote tax toxic assets. They have US treasuries, right? They're just uh, duration mismatch. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and so I, I think, you know, there, there's so much, so many layers of this that we could we could unpack. I think the, the net of all of this is that the unprecedented nature of wiping out sub and even senior debt in the First Republic collapse is is worrisome it should be worrisome right and, and furthermore yeah. you know a lot of these banks are incentivized to issue sub debt or subordinated debt 
um, because they can actually use it against, I think they're two-tier capital reserves, as well as, and a lot of people don't know this, the interest that they pay on subdebt is tax deductible. It's just this, you start to unravel this and you look at it and go, well, no wonder they're in this kind of position that they're in, right? Like the banks are in, in, by design and definition of positive carry organizations. They're not going to put themselves in some sort of position where they're not generating money and while also not you know, meeting their capital requirements. But then you have the unraveling. And so how do you actually resolve that? Well, again, major policy change or every single one of these banks is going to have to be recapped. And we see the blueprint for recapping. Depositors get made whole thus far. Everybody else is wiped out. Yeah. So I just have taken any regional bank off my screen. Don't discuss it. Now, where's the tax here? The tax here is maybe, I mean, I can't complain. All I had to do was switch from First Republic to RBC. I'm like a fucking whack-a-mole. My financial advisor or my wealth manager, whatever you call them, I'm giving them more advice than they're giving me because I'm like, yeah, I guess you should go to RBC. I'm like, shouldn't they be handling my money? So now exactly. I'm opening up new documents at RBC for like a generic T-bill account. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, well, the, we're the, talking about we, 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 massive amount of stress and worry and and waste in the system. Yeah, we, to do we, to we, what was accomplished, I don't know. We we covered this as well in the update where you know the the problem exactly what you're describing, right? So so you know you're a relative relatively sophisticated investor. You've been at this for a while. You know what about the the you know, the two parents with kids in high school in middle America that have their money in a regional bank and they don't know what to do with it, right? Well, guess what they're doing? <laughs> they're opening up a treasurydirect.gov account and shoving it into T-bills. Yeah. So the amount of money that's flown into T-bills and money market funds is at historic highs. Yeah. Why? There's no counterparty risk. It's literally the US government. So you know the irony is so thick, right? The FTX implosion was counterparty risk. Like Genesis and yeah. uh, lending desk implosion was counterparty risk, right? Um, now we have counterparty risk with our banks. This is a, a, a form of trust that I think most Americans and citizens in general in developed countries just, well, certainly in America, I won't say developed countries because other countries have certainly had their issues with banks. But here we just think of like, I just put my money in a bank and it's fine. Well, that is no longer the case. And so this rush towards treasurydirect.gov or money market funds also puts additional pressure on these banks because deposits are fleeing, but worse confidence in these banking institutions is dropping at a precipitous pace. This is a downward spiral that, again, I hate to sound super dark and bearish on this. I'm just trying to find the the solution here. There's no solution being offered. There's no solution, right. The short sellers are are giving a free lunch here. There's no dip buyers, uh, you know. In any past history of Howard, I would have been buying that dip in First Republic. But I understood after watching the policy reaction and just my own behavior of moving, sweeping my money to something that like in 08 might've been a disastrous idea, like with all the clearing firms going under, meaning the only safe place. And it's making me mistrust myself. Like it's so obvious that treasure is the only safe place, which means probably not that safe. So I'm not smart enough to understand this, but it doesn't feel like the government is. And so I'm just trying to stay a few steps ahead here and hiding out in T-bills. I don't think what the government understands is that it'll be hard for most people. Where will rates have to drop before people just get the energy to take their money out of 
Yep. No counterparty risk. We'll probably have to get to ZERP before people realize I'm supposed to take risk again. Oh, man, it's as if you you were reading my mind. You know, the, the thing that I was panicked about uh, that I mentioned with real rates is exactly what you're identifying. So so today, um, you know, the, the CPI print came out. And uh, the, the year over year, so 12-month 12, 12 um, you know, uh, drag uh, was 4.9%, which was below expectations of 5.0%. And why is this important? Well, the Fed funds rate um, is is currently between five and five and a quarter. So call it, you know, 5.125 mid. That rate is above the annualized inflation rate, right? That's a that's an increase in real rates. Well, what are the kind of consequences of this? One, um, when you have high real rates, you, you tend to have um, more pressure on risk assets, particularly equities, right? The cost of capital is more expensive. And furthermore, if you're an investor, hey, park my money in a treasury bond or a T-bill and I can earn risk-free four to five to six percent. Yeah, do people right? not think Jeff Bezos is going to, you know what it's going to take for him to just say, guys, I just can't be bothered. Well, I it, know I'm supposed to support the economy and back <laughs> entrepreneurs, but five percent, dude, exactly. on five billion, do the math. Exactly. Risk-free. Risk-free. And by the way, historically- uh, we talked about this. I don't remember when last year we talked about this because um, we were kind of forecasting where the Fed may end up and we thought it would be between 5 and 6%. And historically, this is a 100% hit rate. The Fed has never stopped the tightening cycle until they got their rate above the 12-month inflation rate, right? So we just had that happen, right? Five, it's 5.125 and we were at 4.9. So our view is that they're done. Um and you can see the Fed futures markets pricing cuts into the end of this year. But even if you look at inflation forwards, they're even lower. So the, even with those cuts, real rates are still significantly higher. Yeah. And so that, again, is going to continue to put pressure on growth, on risk assets, et cetera. And so this is the, the panic that I'm kind of you know alluding to is that as real rates continue to be strong, that's going to put pressure on the economy. It's going to put pressure on on growth and risk assets, coupled with the banking crisis. Right? It's not a good cocktail for success heading into the second half of the year. I think one saving grace that we do have is is that historically, heading into an election year, they tend to juice the markets, and so something probably on the policy side will surface. Who knows? The political landscape is so different than it has been historically, but. That, yeah. that we do see is like from a seasonal standpoint, we think the summer is going to be pretty rough without some sweeping policy change. And kind of hopefully towards the end of the year, we start to see some, some normalization given the, the seasonals heading into an election year. So that's a good macro text. So we're all, we, we agree. It's like if you are rich, you're an idiot right now. Now, again, people are investing other people's money, so there's plenty of idiots to go around <laughs> because we've never had more money in the system and so many people managing other people's money loosely. So the the macro could be one thing and prices can still be going up. I'm not, I've seen everything and I'm not telling people what to do. I've been telling people for a year what I'm doing, which is like, I'm not super rich, but 5% is a real number to me when it was zero a year ago. That's it. That's all I'm saying. And it's going to take a lot for me when I know the prices in the private markets are just massively overpriced to get me to buy into your story. Okay. So I've been, I've been saying that for a year, almost two, 
but you know it's boring at this point and i'm worried about being this right for this long so i'm kind of challenging my own you know probing where we're we are writing checks at prices that we like but what is something that's exciting in your arena in your space around the technology side Ooh, that yeah. you're excited about forgetting bitcoin forgetting ethereum what's exciting oh um so uh two things um one is um mobile for sure uh, i think w- with respect to crypto web 3 i think mobile is going to be very large i think that's going to be the next big step function and what does that mean well so for example um right now uh crypto uh, let's back up right um before the the iphone i think you know you're a big blackberry guy you pull it from your dead cold hands right and you have right. an iphone now right um the iPhone had just unlocked so much more for how people engage with the internet, but also engage with you know services, businesses, people, et cetera, right? Um, mobile unlocks, mobile unlocked fintech. Uh, you know, Venmo was a mobile first application, right? So mobile first as a trend in the early kind of smartphone Android era was huge, developing applications that were mobile first. We don't have that for crypto and Web3 yet. And the reason is, is that the mobile phones don't have crypto signing capabilities baked into what's called the secure enclave or effectively the secure chip on the phone. Well, recently yep. Solana launched a Saga phone, which has exactly this. It's now, pretty cool. It's pretty cool, right? And so, yes, there's there, there, you know, there's a fraction of the size of the phones relative to you know, the market share of Google and Apple. But the point is, is that it theoretically can start to put pressure on phone manufacturers, Apple and Google and others, to start actually adding these crypto signing capabilities into the phone. And the reason that I think this is important, this gets to the second thing that I'm excited about, is that uh, Microsoft recently in their web browser, Edge, uh, announced two features. One, ChatGPT, we'll get to that in a second. And two, a lesser known uh, thing that they added was a crypto wallet embedded into the the browser. Why is this important? Microsoft finally has a couple of reasons to wedge themselves into the browser war. Bingo, exactly my point. Because the browser wars, uh, back when Chrome was first launching, uh, they were nobody, right? Um, now they're everything. And everybody, in fact, Edge, Microsoft browsers, built on Chromium, the open source project that powers Chrome. Well, why is this important? In mobile, Apple was reluctant and resistant forever and ever. You couldn't even access your camera, your files, the microphone in the browser. They were like, no, 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 we want all that in apps. We don't want that in the browser. And then what ended up happening? Chrome enabled it on the mobile browser and it unlocked all of these new APIs and features for developers on Android and eventually Apple followed suit. So the possible pattern here is, is that by Microsoft adding this crypto wallet and they're starting to take market share in theory from Google, given that their chat GPT being searched is like exploding. Well, maybe Google's going to have to do the same thing. Now they're going to have to add a wallet. And now also eventually Apple's going to have to do that. Well, that's obviously going to translate to the phone, right? Yes, a lot of things have to happen in order for my theory to come true, but I've seen this movie before and you just identified it, the browser wars. So theoretically, we could see mobile really start to take off over the course of the next few years and you get these mobile first apps that are crypto and Web3 native, which I think will be extremely powerful. So that's one thing I'm really excited about. The second, which I've alluded to, is large language models, chat GPT, who isn't excited about this type of stuff? For me as a kind of tech product guy though, uh, I'm less interested in the kind of the academic exploration of lar- large language models and more about the applicability into products. So how can we start to in- incorporate and integrate this into products? And so at Asymmetric, we have an internal software product that we've been building. You know, it's proprietary to us. It's part of our edge about how we do risk and portfolio management. Guess what? We're incorporating ChatGPT into it such that we could say, you know, hey, uh, 
what would be the optimal expression of this, you know, call it derivative structure based on these Greeks? And also, how does this impact our current portfolio if the price of Ether moves up by 10%? And it just spits out the response, right? That is extremely, extremely powerful. Or more importantly, hey, here's a corpus of all of the sell-side research from every investment bank I've ever received on a daily basis. Can you uh, tell me what the top 10 investment banks, you know, view on the CPI print today is going to be? And it just spits it out. That type of stuff applicability to certainly what I'm interested in is fascinating because the the kind of the, yeah. the opportunities for what you can do of incorporating this at a product level is just absolutely massive. Yeah, exciting. Again, I'm not a geek, but we have six million registered users at Stocktoots and you know Stocktoots from way back. Yep. I had Judd Valesky recently on from Gnip, who's a good friend of mine. I was like, and he was inside the beast, right? Gnip was owned by Twitter. And I always had these questions for people that aren't famous, but were in the middle of this thing. What were you guys thinking? You, you had this data. And there was four companies that would pay the most for this data. Citadel, Goldman, yep. Berkshire, you know, PR Newswire. Why not just charge the few people that will pay the most for it and give it away to everybody else to just increase the value? Why, why hasn't Elon figured that part out yet? And is StockTwits in an LLM world worth more than in a pre-LLM world? Two questions. Yeah. Um... I would argue StockTwits is is more valuable in an LLM world for sure, especially if you can start to incorporate it into the product. Um, with respect to to Elon, I think he's actually you know that there's been a lot of uh, Elon hate, um, probably some of it justified, but I, I'm actually an Elon bull, and I think actually one of the things that you're seeing with with Twitter is he's actually going to start to get all these folks that have been canceled from you know establishment media, bring back streaming, and he's going to build his own network media network, right? Like if you can get- Yeah, he's going to build his own politics. He's going to build OnlyFans for politics. Exactly. Tucker Carlson is now going to be more or less yeah. streaming and, and, you know, whether yeah. you agree with Tucker Carlson or and not- And it'll be up to somebody on the far left, maybe to drop out and just Bingo. be the opposite to him yep. on Twitter. So that he's going to become OnlyFans of politics. It's quite obvious, which is a shame because they really should just be being attacked on Goldman, the people that can pay for this data should pay for this data. Instead, we're going to have just uh, media wars. Yep. But hey, that's his company now. He gets to do with it. And by the way, every change he made was better than the fucking pre-existing management. Yep. Right? I agree. They were useless. So it's his baby. He gets to do with what he wants. But it's quite obviously um, going to be, they're not going to beat OnlyFans. It drives mood and VIX in markets, but it doesn't, it's not going to make people money publishing. Therefore, to make money, he's going to make it the only fan of politics, but he's still got this incredible data. Maybe he runs his own hedge fund off of it. So last, last thing, um, stable coins. I have few moments that I, that stock to its data. It really means something to me because I stare at it all the time and I've learned to read it. And the first was the Bitcoin when it, the messages passed SPY in 2017, I said, that's significant. And then recently during the banking crisis, USDC started trending. It's like, I know what USDC is. I'm not sure if that's the one that ultimately wins, but to see stable coins trending on stock while regional banks were failing, and then to see combined Pepe trending in the same day that the Berkshire Hathaway meeting was going on, seeing them trending right next to each other in 2023, you can't rig that stuff. That is like the subconscious you know, fast follower on stock twits, two things can be true. Like Berkshire can still be relevant and Pepe may be a joke, but it's 
up there in the stream of consciousness. So that with stablecoin makes me feel like we're in for a really wild 2023, 2024. Where is stablecoin to you? Why is it so important? And then we'll let you go. Yeah, sure. Um, I, 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 and we can, for another podcast, we can talk about meme coins because I have a pretty, I yeah. would say, an unconventional view on it to say the least. But with respect to stable coins, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I've been beat pounding the table in this for months. Currently, it's the killer app. Um, you know, you can't send a bank wire on the weekends. Um, ACH is slow. Bank of International Settlements is slow. Uh, there's fees involved. I can send money via USDC or USDT right now to anybody on the planet that has a crypto wallet instantly. And it costs me almost nothing. I just think that's extremely powerful and, and wildly that's the killer underappreciated, app. right? Because it's not sexy, right? Like ChatGPT is the sexy application. Oh, this is so obviously massive use case, right? People are like, oh, you sent me money. Big deal. It's like, actually, it's a really big deal. And I think more importantly, as the stablecoin issuance and broadly industry starts to firm up and stabilize even more, um, that is going to enable developers to build very interesting applications on top of it. And let's be clear, the stablecoin industry is a real business, right? Like Circle, full disclosure, LPs in my fund. I've been massive fans from them from the beginning when they partnered with Balaji at, at uh, Coinbase to create USDC. Tether um, recently uh, announced that they generated more profit last quarter than BlackRock. So if you don't think right. that there's real value in this, not only on the economic side, but also on the developer side, I think you're kind of missing what the, the value truly is in stable coins. And that is the genuine ability to be able to send money back and forth at a, very, at a fraction of the cost anytime, 24-7. Uh, and what that unlocks to me uh, is huge. And so you know, we, we are <laughs> stable coin bulls, right? Like we, we wanted to be a dollar. Yeah, me too. Um, but we do think that there's huge applicability longer term to it. And uh, you know, so, we, so we maintain our, our bullish stance on stable coins. It's the first killer app, much like Venmo is the killer app for just moving small amounts of yep. money to your kids in the United States. You realize how valuable Venmo is when you're in France or somewhere in Canada, they don't have it. Yep, exactly. Or, the, or when you have to use Zelle, you go, well, it works, but it's kind of third world. <laughs> right. So, all right. Well, thanks for dropping knowledge. We'll do Memcoins next. Uh, you definitely should be a regular. We talk the same language, even though you're a tech guy and I'm very not tech. So I appreciate the insights. Uh, how do people best find you? Yeah, you can, uh, you can follow me on Twitter or StockTwits at Joe McCann. Uh, and then you can go to uh, asymmetric.financial to learn more about the fun. Okay, I'll share the links. Have an awesome summer. Thanks for, for dropping this knowledge. And yeah, everybody, you should follow. No nonsense. Always responsive. Uh, keeps it high level and uh, very inclusive. So thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Hey, Knut. Hey, hey, Howard. He can riff. Uh, Ethan, did you learn a few things? Learned a lot. See how clearly he can speak, but yet fast? I know. I understood everything he said. Did you? It wasn't like fast talk. I don't know what he's talking about. We kept it very high level. And we can get down in the dirt around meme coins and this stuff, so he can go both. But, you know, when you learn to trade at these big entities, you, you learn to speak the language. Yeah. All right. You are listening to Panic with Friends. We talk to people like Joe, who are in the pits, learning... Uh, getting ahead of the curve. We like talking to investors, traders, entrepreneurs, founders, technology world, uh, consumer product world, because they uh, keep us just a little bit ahead of everybody else. So uh, search my name, Howard Lindzen, or Panic with Friends on Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, and you will see our podcast. Subscribe, and you'll get one every week. Tell your friends. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. 
Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.